This is Vintage Broadcasting. The following is a study through the book of Philippians. My name is Frank Doss. I hope this study proves beneficial to you in the days to come. I thank you very much. That I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Everyone looks out for his own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I'm confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. If the Christian life were presented to you as a job performer, listing job requirements and personal qualifications, or personal requirements, many people would quickly see that the job requirements and qualifications were just too strident. They were impossible. It's like a sales manager requiring you to produce sales that exceed reality. The market has grossed $50,000 annually for the last two years in your territory, and it is growing. But your boss comes in and lays down this year's projections. He wants $500,000 or else. Now, most options, most salesmen would opt for the or else and find another job. Now, this is why we must clearly and fully understand basic Bible teaching. The Bible calls us to a life of holiness. We're to be a holy nation, holy men and women serving God. We're to live holy lives. There are holy days and holy ways which we are to follow. Over and over and over, we are called constantly to be holy even as He is holy. But you and I, far from being holy, cannot really see any true hope of achieving holiness anytime soon. At least we believe, though, right? At least we came to Christ, right? We got that far. So we get a quick pack on the back and we're feeling good. Well, we begin to study. And as our study progresses, we start to see that God wants us to conform to the image of Christ and that we have misunderstood so many things for such a long time. We get a glimpse of his love, his compassion, his wisdom, his understanding, his holiness, and all of his other perfect attributes. We begin to understand who he is. And if you do what I did, you will end up depressed and discouraged, feeling like a complete failure. Let me explain. I wanted to obey and meet the standards that God has put forth. So I kept a little small pocket notebook with a list of holy characteristics. It says, love others, uh, think like this, pray, and so on. Well, I would refer to my little notebook at the end of the day and see you know, what I was able to keep and what I wasn't able to keep. I'd find out that I'd failed miserably. I'm determined to do better tomorrow, though. Tomorrow I came and went, and again my inability would glare at me and accuse me and condemn me. After a month of failures, I decided that I needed help to come close to beginning to meet these simple standards. I understood that I was so far from being like Christ that I couldn't imagine conforming to his image in any way anytime soon. All I could see was my sinfulness and my own inability. It was, for a time, quite demoralizing. I was a young, young man and very emotionally and spiritually immature. 
as I grew and I studied, what helped me immensely was coming to realize the meaning of 2 Corinthians 5.17 and 2 Peter 1, 1 1-4. 2 Corinthians says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. That means the old life is gone. The old way, the old man, the old Frank, the sinful, wicked wretch, he's gone. There's a new thing here. And then in 2 Peter chapter 1, it says, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That, that has really impressed me. That we are partakers of, we possess within us, we partake of that divine nature that he has put within us. And we find out about these things as we study the word of God. This understanding comes through the knowledge of him that has called us. I have a new nature. I did not know what this meant as a young Christian, but I began to understand over time. God's standards are perfection, period. Anything less falls short, and anything short of God's will is sin. What a horrible thought. I was falling so far short. Could I have had any true hope of salvation at all? Who would deliver me from this dreadful body of sin? Praise be to God that Jesus did. The key was understanding that this new nature is God's nature within me. Paul refers to this as Christ in me. Conforming to Christ is a willingness that allows him to expand his nature in me more and more and more. This is called sanctification. It grows in influence as I submit and obey. I personally cannot develop this nature through my own efforts and all the planning I can manage. I tried, and I have tried, and I've tried again. God has to put it within me, and he has through the death and the resurrection of Christ. He did a new work in me. Through the death of Christ, all my sins have been removed, not in part, but the whole. And now I'm a new creation. Early in my Christian life, that was just a nice thought. But I failed to realize this as a true fact, a life-changing fact that was actual and real. I have been given a new heart, filled with unique desires, and empowered by the very divine nature of God. Again, it's Christ in me doing this work. The Christian life is supernatural, and it requires supernatural resources. Well, as a young man, I would scrape and search, but I could find nothing supernatural within me. I was looking in the wrong place for the right thing, and I was asking the wrong questions to the wrong person. I was asking myself to do better, and I couldn't. The supernatural ability has been placed within me, as I said, by God himself. God lays out the qualifications, but with these requirements, he also provides a supernatural resource to fulfill those qualifications. He works within the Christian 
to put these high principles into practice. That is exactly what Paul is teaching the Philippians here in Philippians 2. Take this to heart and memorize it. It's God who is at work in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Now, our study has considered that the central theme of Philippians is living the Christian life, how to live it, and some of the fundamental characteristics that are to be incorporated into your life are outlined here. The first thing pointed out is that we should not live selfishly, but humbly. Humility is a quality of character found in all of those who know Christ, not an egotistical self-confidence. The humble man says Christ can, and if he so desires, while the egotistical man says I can, and I'll figure it out one day. The proud man will not know the blessings of God. God literally sets himself against the proud man. Sad to say, but the proud man does not even recognize that God is opposing him or that he's standing in opposition to God. Though he might profess his Christianity with a loud voice and he might be doing great things within the church, but pride has blocked him off from God. Ah, but I'm doing fine, he says. I have friends, family, fame, fortune, God's blessing me more than I ever could have imagined. This is what the proud man says, but he doesn't realize. A frustrating thing in raising children, and I've raised five of them, is seeing how absent-minded a child can be within the family structure. He or she can be totally unaware of the needs of others. The mother works all day long keeping the home clean preparing meals, washing clothes, sweeping the floor, feeding the animals, and bandaging scraped knees. On top of this, she constantly worries about her children, their needs, and their spiritual growth. She may even work outside the home and still have all these responsibilities to tend to. Then the husband comes home from work, barking for dinner, asking why the yard is messy and tired after a long day. She needs help, obviously. She only has two arms and two legs, and that's all she has. The children should be taught to recognize and assist in all that the mother does and willingly extend a helping hand. But they have to look and they have to recognize and understand that she needs help. Now, I know, I know, this only come in fairy tales, right? I raised five, and I've experienced these things. Children have to be taught selflessness and to recognize that other people have needs. This is not something that comes naturally. They have to be reminded to obey their parents and to honor their father and their mother. It's something they need to learn. And fathers, you, not your wife, are given the charge of bringing your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Then the argument carries on in the book of Philippians, because the Philippians are children of God, they are to do things pleasing to God without rebellious complaints and internal disputes. They are to be without blame amid, amidst a crooked and depraved generation, among whom they shine like stars in the universe, holding out the word of life. This is to be their high and unwavering standard. At this point, somebody is bound to object. On paper, all this looks fine and ideal. But it's pretty hard to do when it comes down to actual practice. How can a man meet such standards? Paul knew it wasn't going to be easy. 
and it would require many things such as a willing heart, discipline, prayer, obedience, repetition, failure, faith, and fellowship. It wasn't going to be easy, but it's not impossible. To prove that, he cites three men who went beyond theory and put these things into practice. These three men were Paul himself, an apostle, Timothy, a young minister, and Epaphroditus, a layman. In the remainder of the second chapter of Philippians, Paul uses these people, these three, to show that the things he has been writing about are fully possible for the one who will surrender his or her life to God. We're going to look at the first examples in this study here. The apostle. The first example Paul uses is himself, although he does so only briefly. In fact, he only uses one verse to describe his own attitude and conduct as opposed to six verses for Timothy and Epaphroditus. Of himself, Paul says, But even if I am poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and will rejoice with you all. To understand this verse, we have to realize that Paul is using very potent images. The verb that is translated as poured out is a technical word for a certain part of a pagan sacrificial offering. A Greek or a Roman performing such an offering would first kill a valuable animal and then burn it on an altar. Following the sacrifice, the ancient worshiper made an additional offering called a libation. He would take a cup of wine and he would pour it on the altar, thus pouring it upon the sacrifice that was already burning. Because the altar was hot, the libation would immediately disappear in a puff of steam. Paul is referring to the libation. He is saying, I know that you're worried about me because I'm in prison here in Rome and my life may soon be offered up upon a pagan altar. But my life is not the important thing here. The important thing is your faith. Your faith is a substantial and valuable offering. And when I'm dead, it will only be a drink offering poured out upon a far greater offering of your faith. Paul was placing his own achievements, even his, even his martyrdom, at a very low point on the scale of Christian service. He was holding up the faith and the achievements of his converts for admiration. This is an example of the humility and obedience to Christ that Paul is talking about. Do you show this kind of humility when you meet other Christians? If not, you must apply Paul's self-evaluation to yourself and not reckon your achievements too highly. Paul's frame of mind did not come about instantly, though. His humility was a product of a long relationship with God. If we would emulate Paul and his self-effacement, we must be prepared to start at the very beginning. We must learn small lessons in humility before there can be larger ones. Then we move on to consider Timothy, the youthful minister there. The second of Paul's examples is Timothy, the young man whom Paul had taken with him on his various missionary journeys. Paul speaks quite eloquently of him. He said, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I don't have anybody else like him who takes a, a genuine interest in your welfare. Everybody looks out for their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself 
because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. These verses say four things clearly about Timothy. First, Paul didn't have anybody else like him. Now, this phrase can mean different things, I know. It can mean that Timothy was unique. That is, I have nobody quite like him. Or it could mean that there was nobody else who could do Timothy's particular job. Or it could mean that Timothy was like Paul. And I believe in this context, it probably means the latter. Paul has been writing about the attitude of mind that thinks humbly of itself and much of others. And he's mentioned himself as an example. Now here is Timothy also, for Paul had found that he too was self-effacing in his conduct. Second, Paul says that Timothy was so concerned for others, he cared for them naturally. In fact, he served them with the disposition of a true shepherd who was faithful in the care and the protection of his flock. If you read the Old Testament, you'll see an example of a good shepherd in Jacob, one of the Old Testament patriarchs. Now, when you read his life, you'll see that he wasn't really a praiseworthy character. He was a liar and a cheat, and he had a lot of challenges. But in one respect, he was eminently praiseworthy. Jacob was a shepherd who was faithful in his care of the flocks and deeply loved his wife. On one occasion, when his uncle Laban reproached him for leaving suddenly with all the flocks for Palestine, Jacob said, I did not bring to you animals torn by wild beasts. I bore those losses myself. This was my situation. The heat consumed me all day long, and the cold at night, and sleep fled from my eyes. It was like this for 20 years that I worked under you, Laban. Jacob spoke the truth. He had been a good shepherd, and Laban didn't contradict him. He couldn't. On another occasion, when he returned to his home and met his brother Esau, Esau wanted him to hurry on to where he was living. But Jacob was concerned for the children of his household and for the flocks. He said, he's speaking to Esau, My Lord knows that the children are tender, and that I have to care for the ewes and the cows nursing their young. If they're driven hard for just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of a servant, while I move along slowly at the pace of the droves before me and that of the children. Timothy was like that. Timothy had great concern for God's people, and he led them gently. Gently. That's something to consider. Jesus deals with us gently, not according to our sin and our corruption. He deals with us gently. How do you guide your children? How do you guide your wife? How do you guide those that you're teaching or your church at work? How do you treat people? Do you drive them on regardless of the individual condition and their ability to travel with you? Do you lead them gently? That's the task of a good shepherd. He knows his sheep. He knows what they can do, and he cares for them. The third thing Paul raises about Timothy is for his concern of Jesus Christ. Timothy put Jesus Christ first in his thinking and in his actions. In this, Timothy stood head and shoulders above those around him. It's easy to put other things first. Now you can give first place to your plans, your family, your success, 
or anything else. It doesn't matter. If it comes before Christ, it's taken the wrong place. But if you do this, even the things that you think should be done will be distorted. You're missing life's greatest blessings. Timothy put Christ first, together with Christ's interest. And the other things, well, they fell into place naturally. The final thing Timothy is praised for is that he had learned to work with other people. Paul says of Timothy, But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he served with me in the work of the gospel. I've seen how he works with people. I've watched, and Timothy has grown immensely. How often we want to be independent. We want to serve God, but the work must be our work. We have to do it our way. And it must be run in according with our conception of how things should run. Paul never had this problem with Timothy. The generational gap did not show up in their relationship. That is a true mark of Christian maturity. The ability to work alongside others, cooperating under the banner and for the cause of Christ. The biggest problem within Christian ministry is attitude. An angry, selfish attitude. And it's these things that bring about a quenching of the Spirit of God. Learning how to work together is critical. This verse also says as much about Paul and about his ability to work with others as it does about Timothy. Paul referred to Timothy's service as the service of a son with his father. And this is not the expression that somebody would normally expect in antiquity back in those days, or today for that matter. The normal duty of a son is to obey his father and to serve him. Paul's readers would have expected the verse to say, As a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. Instead, Paul alters the sentence to include the small word, with, and thereby indicates that the service of himself and Timothy was a joint service and a work for the Lord. This is the real answer to the problems of what some call the generation gap. We talk as if the generation gap were something new, but anyone who knows history well knows that it's as old as the hills. Socrates said of the youth in his day, thousands of years ago, which sounds very similar to what I hear from so many mothers and fathers in our day. He said, our youth now love luxury. They have bad manners. They have contempt for authority. They disrespect the elders. Children nowadays are just tyrants. They no longer stand up for the elders when they enter the room. They contradict and talk back to their parents. They chatter before company. They gobble their food down and terrorize the teachers in their school. This was written thousands of years ago, but it sounds like today. The Bible is so full of examples of the difficulties between fathers and their children. First and Second Samuel in the Old Testament contain half a dozen examples. All the problems between the generations could have arisen between Paul and Timothy, but they didn't. They could have been jealous of one another, but they weren't. There could have been great misunderstandings, but there weren't. There could have been diversity of purpose and rebellion and tyranny. Instead of all this, Paul and Timothy served as partners in the spreading of the gospel. 
each taking his standard and his instructions from the Lord. While the Bible does not indicate how old Timothy was, it's fair to assume that he was younger than what people would normally expect. Paul referred to him as his beloved son, and he encouraged him not to let men look down on him because he was young. Now, some have said that he was a child when he came to the Lord, but that's speculation. We don't know how old Timothy was. But let's say you're a millennial or even a Gen X individual. You're a young man or a young woman. Have you heard the gospel? Have you understood the claims of Christ? Do you see the calling to which God has called you? Most parents know it's unacceptable for a child to rebel against his parents or the older generation. Even young men and women are to work with their parents and elders in the Lord's service. This is taught to the children while they're young. And they can practice these things as they learn to serve Christ, not merely on their own. As they learn to serve Christ, as they learn to serve the interest of Christ and not merely their own self-interest. This verse also speaks to you, mother and daddy. You have the responsibility before God of raising your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You are to lead your children to become faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. Are you doing that? Fathers, you are responsible to encourage your children, not to discourage them. Your encouragement should lead them to follow Christ. You are to instruct them in the truth of the gospel and to teach them to incorporate biblical principles into their daily life. That's your job. Daddy, to emulate Christ's character so that your child can see the viability and the reality of your faith, you need to follow Christ, and you have the role and responsibility of doing this before your family. We must never forget that we, you and me, serve as bond slaves of Jesus Christ. Whatever standards you set for your children and whatever patterns of obedience you seek to instill in them must be practiced in you and be part of your daily life. Ultimately, your children's loyalty is to be directed not to you, but to Jesus Christ. Your children are to recognize the realities in your life. They know what you truly believe and you practice. So listen to what Paul is teaching the Philippians. Ask the Lord to show you how to live in such a way that your children would desire to follow in your footsteps as you follow the Lord. Then you can encourage one another. Then you will shine as bright examples of what the Christian life and Christian family is all about. This is what Paul is desiring to see in the Philippians. And these are characteristics and qualities that we should see in ourselves as well as in the church body. So we have a great deal to learn.